Um, today we're continuing in vintage Christianity. Vintage Christianity. We are talking today about no favorites, no favorites, in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Um, not too long ago, I was reading a preacher who had listed a lot of the ways in which the church perhaps has failed in the last 50 or 60 years or so here in the United States. He said, we did nothing when prayer was removed from public schools. He said, we did nothing to stop the legalization of abortion. And, and by nothing, it means we did very little in some of these areas. Some we did a little bit, but not a whole lot. He said, we've been silent through the proliferation of pornography. We made no effort to prevent the downward spiral of family values. And, and, and the list just went on and on with all of those moral things that, that, are, that we see happening in our society, taking this downward spiral into immorality uh, more and more. And, uh, and they're serious issues, to be sure. They're, they're very serious issues. But there's one area where I, th I think we've most egregiously... Uh, dropped the ball and we've blown the opportunity to reach unsafe people and, and to touch the lost world that is around us. And, and that's the area where most people would, most people in church anyway, would consider very small and, and perhaps insignificant if, if having any, any relevance at all and, and, and something of no major consequence. Yet this is an area that Jesus addressed uh, directly, and that Paul addressed directly, and that James addresses directly here in chapter 2. I want you to read with me, follow with me, as, as I read uh, these first four verses of James chapter 2. And let's determine, is this a small issue, or is it not a small issue? James says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When I began working on this series for James, I considered a different name for the series than Vintage Christianity. I really, I really thought about using the term blue-collar Christianity. Um, actually, I, I thought about Mercy Triumphs, but somebody else had already used that one not too long ago. And, and we'll actually see those words in today's passage. But I really thought about blue-collar Christianity because it fits James' presentation of the Christian life. James, the half-brother of Jesus, takes this real workman's approach to the gospel. It's a very no-nonsense approach. Uh, there's nothing elitist about the book of James whatsoever. He just says, this is what it is, I'm going to tell you. This is the facts, and I'm just going to lay it out for you. In fact, uh, the section that we're going to look at today is the section which he discusses how elitism is really the opposite of the true gospel message. He says, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot be elite. You cannot practice elitism and really uh, be a church that is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just don't add up. So um, I came across a story about a Baptist preacher uh, who was out visiting one afternoon inviting people to his church. 
And, and as he did, he came across one man who said, you know, preacher, I would come to your church. I want to go to your church, but I can't because I don't have any nice clothes to wear. Uh, the preacher said, look, I want you to come to church too. So he said, if I, if I arrange to get you some nice clothes, will you come to church? And the man said, yes, he promised. I'll be there if that happens. So the preacher went home and he made a few phone calls, made a few arrangements for the man to receive a new suit, a new shirt, a new tie, and new shoes. Sunday came and the man didn't show up. On Monday, this Baptist preacher called this man that he had arranged for all these new clothes to be delivered to and and he said, you know, I expected to see you in church yesterday, but we didn't see you. So what, what happened? Was something wrong? And the man said, well, no, preacher. He said, you know, I got up Sunday morning, got up yesterday morning, and I put on my new suit of clothes. And he said, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, man, you look good. And so he said, I, I said to myself, you look so good. You can't go to the Baptist church. I went to the Presbyterian church instead. Now, if, if you know, I'm not trying to disparage anybody here, but you know, there there are there for some churches there there are just different dress codes de- denomination wise, and um, and apparently this guy understood that. Um, but there's a truth in this in this little cute story uh, that's hidden there that we need to consider today. Uh, I think every believer in every kind of church needs to consider, especially um, and, and even here, in, you know, we need it as well. Everybody needs to know um, this, this truth that James is talking about. There are a lot of people, friends, who are out there in our community who simply do not believe us. They just don't believe us. When we tell them, when we knock on their door, when we meet them in the, in, the, in, the, in the community, wherever it is, we go next door and we say, you know what? We love you and God, we say it this way, we say God loves you and we love you just the way you are. And they hear that and they say, you're lying through your teeth. They don't believe that for a second. They don't believe it. Because when they have fallen for that and they've come into a church, they've discovered really fast it's a lie. If they don't measure up in however we decide they ought to measure up, and I'm not talking about just Bree, I'm talking about the church in general, we have a way of telling them, you don't, you don't fit in. You're not like us. And so they've, they've done that. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about just economics here. I'm not talking about just race here. And certainly all those factor in. But I'm just talking about social acceptability in some cases. Just are you socially acceptable to be able to do that? A pastor uh, had gone to preach one day at a, at a, at a, in a different church than his own. He had and accepted an invitation to preach at a friend, a pastor friend's church. And, and he got there early on a Sunday morning, never been to that church before. And, and it was a church that could probably be described as, as an emergent church or emerging church. It was filled with young adults, young people. And, uh, and he said when he got there, everybody was kind of congregated on a patio area of, of deck. 
And, and so he, the man that, that he met, he, he said, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm Pastor so-and-so, I'm here to preach today. And he said, okay, I'll go find, the, I'll go find our pastor and, and, and bring him here too. You can just hang out here with everybody else. So he said he stood back uh, on this deck against a railing and kind of a ways away from everybody. And he, and he started to look at them. And he said, here was a group of young adults, and they were fellowshipping together. They were hugging each other, saying hi. They were having coffee together. And he said that they were just doing church family. They were just doing church fellowship and having a great time doing that. And as he watched them, a couple of thoughts began to go through his mind. The first thought was, all these people look alike. He said they were all young. They all look like they they worked at Starbucks. They look like they've been clothes shopping at Abercrombie Abercrombie and Fish. Fish is that the name of that store that we never whatever it is we never go in that store. He said it was a kind of church where you it was kind of a requirement that you had something pierced in your body or you had really good hair. He said, I didn't qualify on any one of those things. He said, I was wearing a suit and a tie. I'm kind of chubby. And I'm going bald. He described me. And he said, you know, I knew I would. they would probably treat me decent today because I was the guest preacher and I was a friend of their pastor. But he said, I don't think I would have been accepted if I just walked in off the street dressed the way I was dressed. He's probably right. On the other hand, you take one of those people and you brought them into a traditional church, they probably would not have been accepted either without making some changes first. It's about social acceptability. And that scale changes depending on where you're at, but we all have one of those. Every church has one to some degree or another of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. I read about a family who began attending a church in their new community where they'd moved, and and uh, they, they they called back to their, the pastor in their former community where they had lived for a long time, and 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 they said, "Man, this is exciting! So we've just been here a short time, and 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 we're all plugged in. We we made good friends, husband and wife. We made good friends. Our kids are accepted, are accepted, and we're just having a great time. This was such a good move for us to move to this community and to find this church, and it's just been wonderful, and uh, and it's been great. And the pastor said, well, "I'm glad that you found it," but he also was aware of the fact that another member of their church had gone there not not all that long before them, and she was a single mom. And and she was very unlike this other couple. The couple that had just gone, that were married, he said the, the husband had a really good job. He was an excellent conversationalist. He said the mom and dad, their teeth were so white they could have been in toothpaste commercials. And their kids were about perfect in every way. But this young single mom had gone in and she struggled just to get the kids fed and clothed. And they were anything but perfect. And she had called back to her pastor and said, I've been going to this church for like three months and I don't know one soul. 
nobody ever talks to us. And I sit alone every week. I don't think I'm going back. Same church. People coming from the same church in another community. One family has accepted the other fam, the other young family, single mom and her kids, are ignored. And the scandal is, is that very thing happens week after week and church after church here in the United States. And it is an outright defiance to the teachings of Jesus and to the apostles. Everything we see in the New Testament tells us that is sinful. And it should not be. And we accept it as normal in our churches. We say this is how we've chosen to live. This is how we choose to do church. And we just shrug our shoulders like it's no big deal. Who cares? That's what we like. Well, it is a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's time for churches to get their priorities straight on this. We are not the social club. We never were intended to be and we should not be. We, we exist... We do not exist for the comfort of our members at Berea Baptist Church or any other church. We are not a political action committee that exists to rally only to rally, I should say, voters and boycott certain organizations uh, when it's necessary. There are times when we have to do stuff like that, but that is, near, that is far from being our primary uh, concern. Uh, we are here to declare, we're, we're, we are not here, I should say, to declare war on non-believers. We are here to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and to show his love to a lost and dying generation. That's our mandate. That's who the church is. That's who the bride of Christ is to be. We exalt our Savior, and we proclaim the good news to a lost and dying generation. And if we're not living the Jesus life, doing his work, treating others as he treated them, then we're not doing our job. And so we come to the book of James. We come to James chapter 2, and we discover that in order to be a vintage Christian, and by vintage Christian I mean to be the type of Christian that Jesus set out the, the mandate for, and that James, his half-brother, who wrote one of the very first books of the New Testament, said, this is discipleship, this is Christianity, this is, to who, this is who we are to be, then, then we have to make some decisions. Because in order to be a vintage church, or to be vintage Christians, there are three principles that we need to apply to ourselves. So, so here are the three things that we need to be doing every day. Three everyday principles to practice. First of all, we need to treat everyone the same. Treat everyone the same. If you went to kindergarten, and you can still remember back to that, you learned this concept in kindergarten. It's, it's, that, it's, it's that simple. You teach it to kindergartners. And it has not changed since then. I, I really tried to think of some profound way to say that, but there's no better way and there's no more clear way to say it than you just treat everyone the same. How difficult is that to catch on to? It's not. That's what we're to do. It just can't be said any more clearly than that. And then James already said it. In verse 1, he said, don't show 
favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Listen to the whole verse. Again, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. He says, if you are a believer, you're part of the church, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, don't show favoritism. Stop it, he says. Don't do it. Just don't do it. We are to treat everyone the same. And we know this, but we fail at it so often, especially in the church. Um... You know what some of, some of the real problems with favoritism are? I think that the number one problem with favor, showing favoritism in the church is that it's demeaning. It's demeaning to individuals. And, and it's not just to, to, to other people. Uh, it's not just demeaning to somebody who's being overlooked. It's also demeaning to somebody who's being favored. Who's being favored. Why? Because we show favoritism to those people that we think can do something for us. I came across a letter a couple days ago that a pastor had written to prospective members. They visited the church one time. They've been in his church one time. One Sunday morning. Wrote them a letter. Sounds like a nice thing to do, doesn't it? And I don't know anything about the people. But I suspect they were people of some means based on where they lived. And he said this, he said, you're the kind of people we need in our church. We want you to come back. I got to think, there were some other folks who probably showed up once in a while that got no letter. Because that letter would have said, you're not the kind of people that could help us grow. You're not the kind of people we need in this church. Find someplace else to go. Because when you're telling somebody you're the kind of people we need, there's other people you're telling, no, not you. And James says, show no favoritism. Because you just demean, you demean the people that aren't, aren't worth it in your mind. But you've also demeaned these people. You said, you're, you're, you're special. And we need you. I need your money. I need your talent. Whatever it is, I need you. You can help me. You can help us. And so we're telling them, you know, it's, it's, it's only because of what you got. It's not because you got worth as a person. It's not because you have value as an individual or as a family. Think about it. If a fat cat millionaire were to come into most churches in the United States and sit down just out of the blue and everybody knew that they were a millionaire or a multimillionaire, Imagine if Bill Gates were to come into church and sit down. You know what? It doesn't take a lot of math genius to figure out what 10% of several billion dollars is. And we're thinking, wow, that could help us. That could solve a lot of problems. Talk about fixing church buildings. We understand that. Or a lot of churches, they just kind of, they kind of model call musicians because they know how, how much good musicians can do to help a church. And I appreciate our musicians so much. But I tell you what, there are some churches where, I mean, they will just lay out the red carpet to anybody who can play an instrument really well. And they will they will pay top dollar. Uh, you know, I know we pay you guys, you ladies well. 
But there are musicians who would say, I'm going to the church that pays hundreds of dollars a week for me to play or to sing. And they're out there. Folks, there are musicians who get paid more than, than a lot of pastors in small churches. Because, because the church has decided we gotta have, we gotta have that. I've seen, I've seen youth pastors who, who their youth ministries go after the, the, the beautiful kids in high school. Because their, their reasoning is always, well, if I could get football players and cheerleaders to come, then they'll attract other kids to the youth group, and we could build on that. And you know what happens is they'll get them, they'll get some of the football players, they'll get some of the, the, they'll get some of the, the cheerleaders, and who they've gotten? They've gotten the in crowd of the high school, haven't they? They're the kids who, who are, in the, who are in, the, in the the center circles of, of elitism, and, and the social hierarchy. And they bring them into church, and what happens is they just, they just plant that same hierarchy within the church. And you know what? The same kids that are not accepted in high school come to their church, and now they're not even accepted in their youth group either because they don't fit into that circle. And it's favoritism. And we do that. <clears throat> and, and that's not the model for the church of Jesus Christ to follow. And when you come to this church, rich or poor, beautiful or plain, or plain looking, talented or not, tall, short, bald, or with really cool, without we, I may not accept that one. If you have really cool, movie looking star hair, I don't know. But uh, other than that, you know, you're accepted. I remember one time I was sitting in my church office on a Sunday morning. Um, and the doors were open, and and uh, and I could hear someone coming down. The door to the hallway opened up, and, and you know people are coming to the nursery, which is right next door to my office. Great place to put your office, by the way. If, if put it next to the nursery, yeah, it'll it'll be quiet in there. And um, and and we were, you know, and I and I I hear the door open, and I and I hear rustling, but I smelled somebody coming far sooner than I saw him. I mean. This guy was about from me to Daniel, and I could smell him coming down the hallway. And, and, and he came in, and he sat down, and he said, he said Pastor, he said, I, I had never met him before. He was a homeless guy, and just, I mean, he had been living out in, on the riverbed for a while, and, and, and he just smelled atrocious. And he was, and had, was just wearing just really raggedy clothes, and... And he said, I, I am so hungry, and I need, I need some help here. And I said, you know what? We're just about ready to start Bible study, and, and I'm not going to be able to help you right at the moment, but if you'll hang out for the next, next hour, uh, I'll, I'll, take, I'll help you right after Sunday school. And, and he said, well, I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't go in to, to Sunday school. I said, sure you can. And so I, I walked him over to the adult classroom where our adults were at, and I saw Dan Beard. Dan Young was a young... Uh, was a young sailor, uh, and, and his wife was a sailor too, Dan and Mary Beard. And, and I saw Dan, and he just happened to be the first guy I saw. I said, Dan, come here. And I called him over, came over, and I said, Dan, and I introduced him to this man who'd come in, this homeless guy. I said, Dan, this, this is so-and-so, and he's going he he's gonna to hang out with us this morning, and he's hungry. We had donuts and coffee like everybody, most churches do. I said, would you help him get a couple of donuts and some coffee to drink right now and then stick around with him in Sunday school? 
He said, sure, Pastor, I'll be glad to do that. And Dan took him, took him over and made sure he had some donuts and some coffee. He sat with him in Sunday school. I know he did because I was teaching that class. And I watched him sit at the same table with this guy right next to him. And I'm thinking, oh, Dan, this guy smells bad and you're just smiling right through it. You think he's your long-lost brother? At the end of Sunday school, he said, Pastor, he said, he's going to stay with us for the next hour in worship. He said, I'll bring him to you after worship. And Dan took him and sat with him during worship service. I thought, Dan, your crown is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in heaven, I think, right now. Dan said, there's no favorites in the kingdom of God. Dan would have done the same thing if it had been a rich guy that came in, but this didn't happen to be the day. He said, this is who is here. This is the person who's here that i got to love and I've got to minister to. That's showing no favoritism. That's what James is talking about here. He's saying, whoever they are, whoever comes in, you show no favoritism. That's the principle of impartiality. He says, practice the principle of impartiality. That whoever it is, whoever walks in our doors, those are the people we minister to. Whoever it is that we run into on the street, those are the people we love and minister to. We don't, we don't choose and, and handpick only the people who are like us or only people who smell good or only the people who have a lot of money or whatever it might be, we just minister to people because Jesus loves all of them. You practice the principle of impartiality. The second thing he says is to accept nothing less than a zero-tolerance policy on this. He says you've got to accept nothing less than a zero-tolerance policy on this. I think we're way, way too easy on ourselves when it comes to this area of showing partiality. We court rich and beautiful and we ignore the needy way too often and we let ourselves off scot-free. And James basically tells us, don't kid yourself, you're not getting off that easy. It's just not going to happen. Listen to his words. I, I want you to listen to him in the New Living Translation and see in your sermon notes. He says, starting in verse 9, But if you favor some people over others... You're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. Now I know that a lot of pastors and a lot of theologians like to use this passage to defend the idea that one sin is just as bad as another sin. And we've probably all talked about it that way. Um, you know, if you exceed the speed limit, it's the same as if you're robbing a bank and vice versa. And I, you know, I suppose, but I don't think I want to try telling that to a judge. Well, I know I robbed the bank, but, you know, it's really no different than running, running that red light. So, you know, just give me a little fine and we'll be, we'll be good. That doesn't work that way, does it? Not in real life.
I think we need to apply these words a little differently. We need to apply them to the area of our lives, to, to how we treat others, because that's the context in which James is telling this story here. James compares showing favoritism with two of the worst sins on the books. He compares showing favoritism with adultery and murder. And I think it's safe to say that those are two sins that we pretty much have a zero-tolerance policy on. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know any pastors worth their salt or any churches that are true churches that would tell somebody, you know what, it's okay if you go out, guys, and fool around on your wives. What she doesn't know won't hurt her. What you're probably hoping is it won't hurt you. No church is going to tell you that. No pastor is going to tell you that. No pastor is going to say, you know what, if you get angry with somebody, just shoot them. Shoot them dead. That's fine. You can go to a church that would tell you those kinds of things. No, you're not going to do it. You say, no, we got a zero tolerance policy on those things. We don't do those kinds of things. No legitimate church is going to dare to say something so outrageous. But there are a lot of churches who claim legitimacy who say that type of person doesn't fit in here. That's not who we are. Let's direct our attention toward this type of person that, that, that does fit with who we are, not toward that type of person. And James is saying that that seemingly harmless accommodation of the realities of our American social system is just as evil as committing adultery or committing murder. And he says, don't do it. We have to demand far more from ourselves and from our church as individuals. James says, practice the principle of authenticity. You practice the principle of authenticity. He said, you can't be partial. You have to practice impartiality, but you also have to be authentic. You don't play games with the commandments of God. We hold ourselves to a higher standard, and that higher standard is zero tolerance when it comes to being partial or favoring one over another. And then he says, thirdly, be generous in evaluating others. Learn to be generous when it comes to how you evaluate other people. We need to be hard on ourselves, and we need to demand more from ourselves, because verse 10 again says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So, so if, if I'm going to stumble over some point in the law and I'm, going to, and I'm going to be partial and show favoritism towards somebody, then I'm going to be held responsible for it. I'm going to be held guilty of that. And at the same time, we need to go out of, way, out of our way to give others a break when we have the opportunity. Listen to verse 12. Listen to what James says. He says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free, according to the New Living Translation. Translation. James says the same thing so plainly that it's almost impossible to miss his point. There's no question that he means uh, that, that he means these these words as he really echoes the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He just says them in reverse form. Jesus said it this way: "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be or they will be shown mercy." 
James says it, verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Or to make it even a little plainer, in New Living Translation, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Man, there will be no mercy for those who aren't merciful. That's tough preaching. Those are tough words. And he says it right after pointing out to his readers that they are all presumably guilty. They're guilty of not living up to the full demands of the law. He says, you drop the ball in the Christian life. You're not perfect. And you need to remember that when you're dealing with others. He says, you failed in, in, in multiple ways, and yet you expect God's mercy in your life, and God gives you that mercy, then you have no right not to show mercy to somebody else. And if you refuse to show mercy to somebody else, then God's going to come back and hold you guilty. And the mercy will stop coming your direction. I don't know about you, but I want God's mercy in my life. Because God's mercy is what I don't deserve. It's what he gives me freely. I never deserve his mercy and you never deserve his mercy. And so we've got to be harder on ourselves than we are on other people. We've got to demand more from ourselves than we demand from others. And at every opportunity that we get, we need to show mercy. You say, well, Pastor, what does that have to do with favoritism? It has this to do with it. We tend to be selective in our mercy. If someone is one of us, quote-unquote one of us, then we tend to overlook their offenses, don't we? We give them the benefit of the doubt. But if someone's an outsider, we tend to judge them more critically. You see it all the time in politics between Republicans and Democrats and any other crats or uns that are out there. Um, if someone on their side makes a mistake, we say, hey, we're all human. But if somebody on the opposite side makes a mistake, it's call out the firing squad. And, and members of all parties do that. I mean, that's just the way life is, we think. And because of that, we, we bring it into the church way too often. And, and there's no pointing fingers at each other. We all need to learn how to show mercy and compassion, even to those who aren't on our side, even to those who aren't one of us. Who aren't in our little clique of friends. Hesius was a scholar in the 5th century, and he said, just as oil enables athletes... To escape the hands of their opponents, so mercy prepares those who practice it to avoid and escape the demons. You want to avoid and escape trouble? You want to get out of some tough spots? Then James would tell you, try practicing mercy to people that maybe don't deserve it. Show mercy to people who aren't like you. Show mercy to people who you don't understand. And God's mercy 
will come. He said, be generous as you evaluate others. He says, it's, the practical, it's, it's practicing the principle of reciprocity. Practicing the principle of reciprocity. Say that fast ten times in a row. Practice the principle of reciprocity. What you do comes back. Show mercy, receive mercy. Deny mercy, receive judgment. It's your choice. Every one of us makes that choice every day. Either I'm going to show mercy and God's going to be mercy, merciful to me, or I'm going to deny mercy to somebody and God's going to deny mercy to me and I'm going to receive his judgment. That's, that's the way it is. So what do we need to take away from this and remember in church? We're not just here, friends, to make friends. We forget that sometimes. We are friends, but that's not our primary calling. We're not here just for the communion of the saints. Those are things that we do, but that's not our primary calling. We're here as Berea Baptist Church to open our arms to those who might not fit in anywhere else. They may not be accepted anywhere else. We're here to those who feel like maybe they don't belong here. To those who feel like maybe they're not good enough, they're not cool enough, they're not hip enough, they're not rich enough, they're not whatever enough, they're not the right color enough, whatever it might be. We need to make every effort as a church and as individuals to make them feel welcome among us. We need to be committed to the principle of impartiality. We just treat everyone the same. We need to be committed to the principle of authenticity. We're not playing games with God's commandments. We're holding ourselves to a higher standard of loving others. And we're committed to the principle of reciprocity. That what you do comes back to you. And when we treat others how we want to be treated, just as Jesus taught us to do, it comes back to us. Father, this morning,